Welcome back to the Boxing One Podcast. This is episode number 38, and I'm your co-host, John Richards, a.k.a. Jay Rich, and I'm here with the homie, Chris Lassiter, a.k.a. C-Lass. What up, homie? What up? What up? Hey, listen, uh, episode 38, do you know any famous 38s that we can dedicate this episode to? I don't, man. Man, I only came up with one or thought of one, and I don't even know if he warrants mentioning on our podcast because he's lost his ever-loving mind since he's finished his playing days. Kurt Schilling, who was a pretty decent pitcher, right? But apparently he got in the broadcast booth and went plum fool. So I'm not dedicating this episode to Kurt Schilling. I'm sorry. Bloody sock and all, Hall of Famer, but I'm not doing it. Sorry, man. Yeah. So um, maybe we go with – I was trying to think who was the best – NBA player ever to be picked with the 38th pick. And I was Ooh. thinking that Draymond fell right around there somewhere. Yeah. And I know Van Exel was like 30 something too, but I couldn't think right off the top of my head who would be the best 38th pick ever in the NBA draft. So that might be something for us to research in the future. Yeah, we can go back and, and get that one because we're not going to do Kurt Schilling, right? Right. We're not doing Kurt Schilling. That's, that's what's not going to happen at all. <laughs> Shout out to the bloody sock game, though. Yeah, it was the Red Sox that dub. That was tight, man. Yeah, that was tight. We're not, we not doing that, bro. Nah, we not. We not. For, for, for other reasons that we're not going to yeah. mention. So, listen, uh, speaking of the NBA, dude, the summer's been pretty quiet, right? We've had some old ballers playing in the big three. We've had some move, people move to different teams. Uh, Paul George is now in OKC, right? But we had a blockbuster mega deal superstar trade happen in the past few days. So we got to talk about this. Kyrie, a.k.a. Uncle Drew, is headed to the city of Boston. Did I do that right? Boston. <laughs> I see the little Boston <laughs> accent there. Yo. He's headed to Boston. And your boy Isaiah Thomas is headed over to Cleveland. Now, I need to get your thoughts on this trade, Chris, because I have my own, but I'm going to see if we're on the same page here. Tell me who's the winner of this trade and who are the losers in this trade. All right. So first of all, like just, uh, you know, I'm a five foot eight baller. So I got a special affection for IT4, right? We not burning his jersey, fam. Like this dude, like, <laughs> and I know it sounds funny, but then like after you start to think about it, it'll actually make you mad, right? So this dude loses a tooth, but the tooth is nothing compared to the fact my man lost his sister in a tragic car wreck and gave the city of Boston everything that he had. Got caught in a weird contract deal where Boston was going to have to commit more than they wanted to long term. And so they decided to trade him. But really, it was Kyrie that pushed the trade and uh, made the trade happen. So I don't understand, first of all, how anyone burning an IT jersey today. Uh, he's laid everything. He's made them relevant again. He's been an amazing story. He's literally given you, like, his life to excel on that basketball court for you. So, like, first of all, that's my immediate thought. Like, you could burn Kyrie jerseys if you want to, if you in Cleveland, if you feel so inclined. I ain't that mad at you, but you can't. Like, um, we're, not, we're not messing with IT. So that was my first thought. Um, hmm. The second thought, like my mind automatically goes to coach and like how do you integrate Isaiah Thomas with LeBron and Derrick Rose in a way that helps you play championship basketball? 
and um, so that those are my immediate thoughts. But I'd be interested to hear what you thought, and then I'll, I'll respond if I have anything else to add. I feel bad for Isaiah Thomas, man. This guy put his soul, body, everything on the line for the city of Boston. And he winds up getting traded to Cleveland, where he obviously is not going to be option one or alpha. And he's in a contract year, right? So he's coming into a year where he has to kind of play at the top of his his game. And look, look, admittedly, Boston kind of didn't have a choice, right? They're not going to be able to give him max money going into his 30s and have Al Horford maxed out as two aging superstars to co combine with Gordon Hayward. Yeah, if you're going to give me Kyrie Irving in his 20s to combine with Hayward and with your boy, Al Horford, I think I'm going to take that. And I think Danny Age was kind of waiting on a better deal, but he had to give up that first-round pick, too, to get him. But you can't be too mad given that Isaiah, they're not going to give a 30-year-old eight point guard max money. Unfortunately, because he reinvigorated Boston basketball last year. So I think that he specifically is the loser in this trade. And I'm kind of, I mean, kind of mad at Kyrie for forcing the Cavs hand. Like, I know that he didn't want to be Robin to LeBron's Batman, but he just pretty much blew up this Boston team, which is a pretty decent ball club or was a number one seed last year. And yeah, now that, they have an entirely different squad, man. That's crazy. Got four players back from last year now. Four. I know. I know. And low-key, Jay Crowder was a really, really important piece on that team. He was the defender on that squad. But then you got a D.C. squad who is admittedly saying, hey, we're a piece away and we know it, that Boston barely got by and, and just looked completely outmatched when they played Cleveland. So, I mean, it wasn't like you were going somewhere in the East. Cleveland was lackadaisical in the middle of the year, plus they battled injuries to love and J.R. Smith in the middle of the season. So it wasn't like you were the true number one. Like no one ever thought of you as really the best team in the East, you know? Like we're still not even sure you're that much better than Toronto, to be honest. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I guess I guess uh, my thought is this, and I'll, ask, I'll pitch this question to you. Are we sure that uh, Kyrie is a superstar outside of LeBron? I mean, he's done superstar things, but he's also done them with like, a trick on the trapeze when you know that safety net's under you. And I feel like LeBron's always been that safety net ever since Kyrie was relevant. Before he was on a team with LeBron, the Cavs were just not a relevant team. Like, he was always special offensive talent, but they weren't making any playoff push. You see what I'm saying? Are, are you saying apart from LeBron, Kyrie struggles? Is this what you're telling our listeners? No, I'm saying we don't have any concrete proof that he's a superstar without him. He definitely was a superstar, right? Like, we are not questioning that. But what we're saying is, did that mature, that maturation process happen, like, because LeBron was there, and, like, now he is a superstar bona fide even on his own? Or was it just LeBron took so much weight off of him that um, he was able to look like a superstar? Like, which one is it? It's a good question, and I think that we'll probably get the answer um, over the beginning of the season as he looks to jail with players who uh, Gordon Haywood was a first option in Utah. 
So I'm trying to I'm trying to understand how that's going to work, even though Hayward probably is going to be inclined to defer to Irving a little bit more. It's going to be a very, very interesting combination there. Horford doesn't need the ball in his hands to make things happen. But I I think Kyrie and Hayward both do. But Hayward is not that much of a diva or prima donna, especially with Brad Stevens and in that offense. So it could work. I'm just looking forward to opening night. They're playing Cleveland in Cleveland. Could (laughs) could the stars align even much more than that, man? That's going to be epic. Epic. Yeah, I mean, I was hoping he would have a huge game, but who even knows if he's back from his hip deal? I don't even think he had surgery. I think he just is going through rehab. But look, I'm just I'm just here for Irving and James. <laughs> my ideal situation is it gets 50 in the first game of the season, justify the five foot eight guy. That would be beastly. But yeah, I am hurt. I am worried about his hip a little bit. And little known thing that people are talking about, like that first round pick might be important, man. Depending on how the Nets do. Did you just say how the Nets do? <laughs> because we know how the Nets are going to do. They Listen, they have a pretty decent squad. They're talking playoffs this year. Playoffs? I think we playoffs. can name two players. Two players? I mean, as basketball junkies, we can name two players? <laughs> you can't name this time five, J. Rich. I'm sorry, man. I'm just saying. Like, the Nets said that they have a legitimate shot at the playoffs. Well, that's I'm just saying this trash with no all stars. They're all on super teams. But name me, name me. Are right, we got Jeremy Lin, and then somebody got traded there from the Lakers, Russell. But yeah. after that, I'm a struggle. I am going to struggle to fill out that roster. It is a struggle. I mean, I think Trevor Booker is there, and that's about it. The Hollis Jefferson kid is there, but yeah, you're right. You can't really name their roster. But they got D'Angelo Russell, man. We'll see. In any event, I think we all know halfway through this season who won this trade. I think so. Because, you know, the Celtics will have jailed by then. IT will know if he's injured or not, if he's capable of putting up those big numbers he did in Boston. So we'll see. All right, we close in this section with this. Okay. We, we close in this section with this. Jay Rich. Give me one prediction we can know for a fact is going to be part of the trade. Like one thing and midway through the season, we'll be able to say, yep, we knew this was true. I'm calling it now. Give me a prediction out of this trade that we know will be true. Halfway through the year, we'll be able to look back and be like, yep, Jay Rich was right. I predict that the homie Al Horford is going to give Kyrie a big side eye in a very, very tense moment in a game on national television. Okay. I predict we learn Kyrie cannot carry a team as the number one option. Ooh, that's a big prediction, man. That's huge. We'll yeah. see. I always, you know, I always ask if you're Negro Damas. We'll see. <laughs> I just remember at Duke when he played with the ACC player of the year, then came back for the NCAA tournament and went bananas in the tournament, but they lost, but he shined. Yeah, I yeah. think we're gonna see that all over again. So, and I like. We'll Kyrie, see, man. We'll but. see. Opening night's where it's at, man. We we gotta watch that game. Got to. Speaking of the stars aligning, this week on Monday, 
we had a phenomenon that doesn't usually occur in North America. It occurs across the globe in several years. Uh, we just don't get to see it because it happens over the ocean or happens in other continents or in other countries. But this year, we were able to experience a total eclipse of the sun by the moon. Now, Chris, you weren't in the path of quote unquote totality, right? No. Okay. Neither was I, but I tell you one thing, this thing was like a cultural phenomenon. I'm talking about news stations. I'm talking about people getting married in that two minute segment when there is a totality. <laughs> Like they pay big money to rent places along the path to get married in that two minutes. And they paid that big money to do that too. Now, my question is, as I thought through this and talked with you about it, um, seeing all these people and many of them probably non-Christians travel all these miles to sit in open fields to watch this eclipse. And then on TV, hearing people like literally crying when it's happening, like, admiring nature like you see how much of an impact that this eclipse had on people so my question is what can the church learn from this overwhelming response to this natural event um, and how what how might we be able to draw people to god in the aftermath of events like this what what does this do for you as you as you start to process it and see people having this visceral response to this event how'd you process it chris just quick story real fast now i'm not the look up type so uh i'm gonna just get that but it was so cool like going out of my neighborhood i told you my neighborhood is very diverse very urban and so to get down with some people who i know like like typically just wouldn't crack open a science book on their own you know what i'm saying but everybody i go outside getting ready for work everybody's got on the glasses and everybody's staring out at the sky like i definitely thought like wow this thing is a phenomenon that's great but my cousin who had a found like a huge impact on me coming to Christ. We actually went to elementary school together and he looked up. And so like without the glasses in elementary school and there was this rumor going around our elementary school. Oh, your cousin is blind. So he did some type of damage to his eyes. We've been roasting him all week about this and say like, uh, this is probably when he became a superhero. That's how he mutated. Like just, all that's great but like i like part of me is like yo i'm really not trying to mess up my eyes here so um but like to your point um it's not just this right it's when you see the grand canyon or niagara falls or like you're at the peak of a mountain and you get this sense of how small you are and how big our world is and then for the Bible to say something like uh, the heavens declare, right? Like they are making an active declaration of the glory of God. And so I think I'm um, like, we use that as common ground to point people to say like, here, here's what we discovered. Like we aren't the center of our universe. You know, we are incredibly small and there's a God that's transcendent, but also imminent. And so like as big as this universe is and as small as you are there is a god who knows every hair on your head and cares about every emotion that you have it says that he fine knitted you 
in the womb. So I think we talk about both the transcendence and the eminence of God as people are like fixated on something that's bigger than themselves and have an idea of just the vastness of our universe. Yeah. So there's such thing as general revelation and, and special revelation um, in terms of the economy of God. So when, when you talk about general revelation, you're talking about God being revealed in these natural events or or natural phenomenons like Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon. Um, Paul talks about that in Romans 120, right? He says, for his invisible attributes, uh, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived uh, ever since the creation of the world. And he goes on to say that all of creation is groaning uh, for that redemption. So, so when I saw this news reporter like choking up, holding back the tears by seeing this natural event that transcends everything that, that she can even conceive of, I'm thinking this is, this is God in his natural revelation or general revelation kind of demonstrating his power to the world. And to see people kind of gather around that was, was something that um, really had a really huge impact on me because I'm thinking, wow, uh, what, what if we had that number of people gathering around talking about God's special revelation also? Uh, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And how can I move people from general revelation to special revelation to see the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ? And and thinking through that um, has been something that has really been, I guess, on me this week, just seeing people traveling for miles and miles just to see this event happening. Um, it was It was both humbling for me um, as someone who wants to proclaim God's special revelation and also just um, help me to kind of see that people are still hungry for something that transcends even themselves. So was it the quarterback for the Raiders, <clears throat> excuse me, who uh, put out the tweet and just say, hey, if if the sun is too powerful when eclipsed to look at from 93 million miles, miles away, um, will we casually stroll into its creator's presence? And mm. that was something that I thought was like, just the, like, if what he's created is leaving us in awe and causing us to cry, what will it be like when we see him? Yeah, so. that's great, man. That's great. Yeah, so I didn't look up either. Look, I was on team, no look up. I, I'm already legally blind almost. So I am not going to be even trying to um, to look up without with or without glasses. I stayed inside the building just to be safe. <laughs> right. Can't I'm take like, those L's. I need my vision, bro. I need my vision for sure. Right. Or we'll be like the Apostle Paul asking people to write letters for us all the time. What? For real. See what, what large letters I write this in my own <laughs> handwriting. Because <laughs> I can't see a thing. Not one thing. All right. Well, speaking of um, not being able to see something. <laughs> I guess this is this is okay. This is like a pet peeve of mine. So I guess we need to talk about it because I used to be this type of person uh, early on in my Christian walk. And I think it will be helpful for somebody to be able to see that um, there is another way. 
So just for some context, when I first became a Christian, I was thinking through ways to share the gospel with folks and uh, how the gospel could impact them. So I would go up to folks and say, look, man, Christianity is what um, I believe to be the truth. But let me just say this, okay? Even if it wasn't true, if you do everything that this book says, the, the worst it can do is make you a better person. Open the doors of the church. <laughs> that was that was my <laughs> that was my method of quote unquote evangelism. And what what I was trying to do was to potentially, or at least eventually I learned this, potentially remove the offense of the gospel um, and then help people practice um, Christianity in ways that would be helping them become um, productive members of society. So my pet peeve is selling the gospel versus actually telling the gospel. Because gospel actually means what? Good news, right? It's something to be proclaimed or told. And in my infancy, in my Christian immaturity, I felt like a car salesman trying to sell people the best car on the lot in Christianity because it would do this, that, this, that, and the other for you, as opposed to talking about what Christ has done for them and not talking about the benefits that come with being a Christian, but necessarily the trials that are going to come attendant with that. So um, my, my, I guess my reflection on that is like, wow, I really want more people to actually tell the gospel versus selling the gospel. Right. So I think you and I would both be in that same camp that says, hey, I wish I could have every single gospel encounter from my early years of being a Christian back. Like if we could just rewind those <laughs> and like never have those conversations in the way we had them. But I think what happens is like you and I both have a heart to say like, hey, the kingdom is still expanding. Like there's still room. Like this is good news and we want to share it with friends. And so we have this zeal, right? But we don't have a knowledge. And um, maybe we're not in the position where like, like our discipleship was all encompassing to cover that, right? So we're just going out and it's clumsy and it's awkward. And then um, as we grow in our faith, we see, um, we tell the gospel and that what they get is Christ and Christ is enough. Mm, like, and we don't yeah. need to say like, um, like any of the benefits, like he is the benefit, like um, he is our everything, right? He gave us everything to be our everything. <laughs> I love I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it. He says, we gave you um, the truth and we gave you our very lives. First Timothy, no, First Thessalonians, Thessalonians 2 verses 5 through 8. That's just Paul saying like, hey, I modeled this thing and I gave you the truth. Like, like I stayed away from selling you the gospel. I told you the gospel and I modeled the gospel for you. And I've always thought that was um, such a great example. And I think like the linchpin verse for me when I was like, wait, I have to be careful how I do this. Is Paul saying like, hey, if there's no resurrection, Christians are to be most pitied among everyone. In other words, if Christ isn't our treasure and if he hasn't like shown a way that we will be like have him like not perish like he didn't perish, like then we have nothing to celebrate. So if we follow all the biblical rules on financial management, we probably will live better. But at the end of the day, like that's 
that's not the prize. So, yeah. And thank God for increased knowledge and wisdom. Um, and thank you for his grace, um, even in our sharing in those early years where we were kind of stumbling and bumbling through things. And we don't even get it perfect now. Yeah. But uh, by his grace, he he continues to allow vessels, broken vessels like you and I uh, to continue to share this good news. So, so uh, if you ran into Jay Richard, I early 2000s, late 90s, uh, right around that time. I'm sorry. Be the ones to apologize to you. I'm sorry. <laughs> we would love to revisit those conversations with you uh, now that we see things a little more clearly. Yes, please. Let's let's talk again. Let's talk again. <laughs> but hopefully, you know, hopefully that was helpful for someone who's trying to figure out how to best approach sharing the gospel. Um, just just tell the story, tell the truth, tell tell about his our depravity, tell about his redemptive work and tell about the change and transformation that happens as a result of placing your full trust in him. Um, hey, Jay, we, we got to talk about one more thing. If we're going to talk about telling versus selling, there's this gospel out there that says, uh, you know, come to Christ so you can get rich. So we, we better at least not Jay rich, but like filthy rich. Um, we we got to touch on that. If, if someone's in a church and they're hearing that consistently, hey, um, like you're supposed to be wealthy, like you're, the wealth is supposed to be transferred to you. Now you're supposed to live your best life. Now, if you're hearing that, what advice would you have somebody for somebody who's either tuning into a TV pastor who is telling them that a lot, or that's happening in their congregation? How do you walk someone through that? Anathema. <laughs> no, right. seriously, Paul, Paul talks about this in his letters, right? He, he talks about preaching a different gospel. And everything that you just mentioned, it falls within the category of a different gospel. And it is a gospel that is not Christ-centered. And Paul explicitly, several times within the same two verses, says anyone who preaches that gospel, let him or her be accursed. Including himself. Yeah. Like, yo, and, even if it's me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he had such a respect for uh, the pure the purity of the gospel that he would include himself in that number if he was someone who preached in that way. So he was, he was very, very intentional about sticking to the primacy of the gospel, which isn't uh, self-centered. It, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't puff one up. It doesn't uh, promise any riches. Uh, the only riches that it promises, as you mentioned, is riches in Christ and being in him, being found righteous in him, being found justified by his finished work. So for anyone who preaches that different gospel, I stand with Paul and say, let that person be cursed. I know it sounds really, really, really harsh, but it's gospel. Um, it's in scripture. And Paul, I'm as serious as Paul about it because I feel like that could leave someone astray uh, just as much as the atheist who who doesn't believe there is a God, um, believing a different gospel. And again, there's still grace within that. God God still is able to bring people out of that situation. Um, but at the same time, the person who teaches, as James says, will be held more accountable because they're actually leading people astray. 
And so the great harm in it is um, you get a character of God that's not the God of the Bible. And so when the cosmic arm twisting through prayer doesn't work the way that the three steps told you they would, um, you're left disillusioned. And then the pastor's left with a choice. And typically that choice is to say, well, I know what I'm preaching is true, so you don't have enough faith. And so what you end up with is a church full of people um, who have invested all of their money, probably sacrificed um, um, beyond what they could afford to sacrifice. I live disillusioned, watch the pastor live lavishly, and then chastise them for not having enough faith. And so it's destroying, it's destroying uh, faith communities everywhere where it's preached. And so that's why we warn against it so strongly and hate it so much and grieve for people uh, whose ears it falls on. All right, right quick. What is on C. Lass's bookshelves? What are you listening to? What are you reading? Let me know, man. Give the people some resources. We like doing this in this segment. We like to tell people what it is that we're reading um, so that they might be able to be equipped with some stuff that has blessed our lives. So what you reading, man? All right, real fast. Uh, today, I read the from cover to cover uh, on the block by Pastor Doug Logan. It was tremendous. It convicted me in some areas of like my heart just growing hard and missional sentness. The idea of like there should be a holy agony for my community uh, to see them engage with the gospel and for me to actually have a plan of engagement. Can't recommend the book high enough. I had started it, then I had some books that I had to read. So the want to read books got shelved for a minute. And so now I'm back. That's been great. I've been going through Brian Loritz's series on uh, Joshua on podcast type stuff every once in a while. I've been trying to keep up with that. So those would be my two resources for the week. I have one um, that I have been making my way through, and I don't necessarily agree with this guy on some other points theologically that he has written on, but I think this book is pretty good when it comes to diversity. It's called The Fellowship of Difference by Scott McKnight, and uh, he just talks about the heart behind uh, pursuing diversity. I know we talked about this last week with a couple of resources, but this is one that came up recently for me, and I've started reading it, and I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. Again, I don't agree with everything that Scott writes, but uh, so far, this this book about unity and diversity uh, is a pretty good read, so definitely commend that. Closing shout-outs. Who you shouting out this week, man? Man, I'm going to shout out my barber. Uh, so today, I was just this is the day out the week where I never work at either job. So I try to make it a day of rest. And so I was just thinking like, what things can I do that are like just God given, like refueling things. So I went to the barber shop and I went to lunch with my barber and I laughed and laughed and laughed. He's been my barber for about 25 years now. Just a good guy. Um, my one friend who's never come to church with me yet so far. So I'm praying for you demotes to step through those doors with me we've had good gospel conversations but um we'll keep that going but just a good dude and faithful friend um and a great barber as well so shout out to my barber demotes good stuff shout out to my dukes my mom man is coming to town this weekend she'll be here with us for a week i have not seen her in about seven or eight months probably longer 
and uh, I'm a mama's boy. So uh, really, really look forward to her coming in town, hanging out with the fam. My wife loves her. So it's not one of those in-law situations, quote unquote. And uh, the kids love her. My mom is probably the first person to kind of show me what hospitality looks like. And uh, that's always been embedded in my memory and kind of in my DNA since being younger. She was the neighborhood mom and everybody always speaks highly of her. So um, looking forward to seeing her this weekend for sure. So shout out to mama. Ah, oh, that's dope. Like the neighborhood mom that used to have the tang in the refrigerator for everybody. everything. I mean, she took kids, <laughs> took kids on trips with us, man. She was, she was that mom, and um, they still talk about it to this day. All my friends, so it's really cool. Ah, that's dope. All right, this has been episode number thirty-eight of the Boxing One podcast. Hey, I did find number thirty-eight, and it was Chandler Parsons. He's probably the only basketball player who was the thirty-eighth pick who would qualify, but I'm not a big Chandler Parsons fan, so we're not going to do that. Not going to do that either. This is just be the blank episode. Sorry, Kurt <laughs> Schilling. Thank you guys for joining us. Uh, this has been episode number 38. I'm here with my boy, C-Lass. Be sure to go follow us at Boxing One Podcast on Twitter. Uh, join our group at Boxing One Podcast on Facebook and go over to iTunes, subscribe, and rate and review the podcast over on iTunes if you've been enjoying it so far. 30 episodes in and we're both having, still having a blast. Can't wait for our next episode, episode number 39. We'll see you guys next go round. We got to do something out. special for 40. Yeah, we could do something special for 40, man, because that's my vertical. All right, word. So we should have done something for 12 then because that's not. <laughs> <laughs> we got a 12-inch vertical. All right, guys. Peace out.